0: Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast, and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter. Alex Perez is a writer for various publications, including Unheard, Tablet, Spectator, and a number of others. You can also check out his new Substack at alexperez.substack.com, which I believe will focus on uh, particularly the area where he lives, which is Miami, and some other themes. Um, Anything else you want to say about the Substack? It's
1: it's basically lit stuff stuff and Miami stuff, so what kind of... Now it's dormant, but we'll play it by ear, so just any kind of uh, topic I like, but mostly about Miami now and kind of lit scene are my two big things right now, so that's the focus. Thanks for being here, Jeff. Well, well oh, anyway, thank thanks. For, yeah, yeah,
0: thanks for joining me.
1: Great, man. Thank you. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, so uh, we're going to um, talk about a number of issues related to the contemporary literary economy and Alex's experience of it and his, his sense of where it's going, and yeah. Um, We decided to start with a discussion of a a particular story by a writer who we both admire a great deal, and that's Roberto Bolaño, the late uh, Chilean-Mexican novelist, short story writer, who, you know, really exploded onto the scene, at least in the English-speaking world, somewhere around 15 years ago, and you know, it's still somebody I find immensely rich to read. He still has some uh, posthumous novels that are still coming out. They're really mining his, uh, right. his sort of um, remaining papers and trying to generate some more, um, some more publications out of them just because he's so, he's still so hot and he's still so um, of such great interest to so many people, including us. Um, have you read any of the recent uh, posthumous texts, Alex?
1: I read the last one. It's a, I think it's the three different novellas. And you can tell they're kind of digging into the hard drive now, finding like you know everything that's left there, because it's just like a hodgepodge of stuff that's already been put out. So I think we're at the end of what he left in his hard drive. I mean, I read all the stuff that's left, but I think we've gotten to the point where it's kind of the end of Bolaño, which is kind of sad, but also in a way kind of good, because we've gotten to a point where now it's just kind of just traces of what he was, which is still fun, but it's not quite finished Bolaño work. So there's still fun moments, but it's not really finished Bologna work
0: I think yeah and I mean I would say 2666 was in a sense I mean was posthumous and was unfinished um but in a sense was also his masterpiece at least according to some and I I think I concur with that I think it's really a, a magnificent um piece of work and uh you know, in some ways it's, it's almost as finished as it needs to be. But then, yeah, some of the later ones that I read, I, I, I did sort of keep up with them faithfully, but then I think the one I read about the, what's the, um, the real policeman, which was sort of a weird, like B side of 2666, I found pretty, you know, disappointing and not you know it, it didn't feel like a great um yeah. i'd to rather me, just go like, back and read his his older stuff than yeah, yeah to me it's a kind of, to that yeah
1: dylan who, i also love bob dylan that i go into all his you know deep cuts at a certain point you're like am i just being a fanboy here and you probably are but it's still yeah. you know it's, it's still fun but i think with bolaño we've reached the point where now it's obviously like you said he's still really hot but it can't ruin the legacy but you read some of the stuff that's just you know drafts you're like okay just Maybe it's time to just let it become a myth now,
0: you know? Absolutely. Yeah. So anyway, I think, you know, the story is, uh, the story we'll talk about to start out is called Labyrinth. And um, I believe it was from one of the posthumous story collections, and yeah. it was also published in the New Yorker in about 2012. And uh, it's, you know, it's a, it's kind of a strange one, but it's, it's quite fun. And I think it relates to some of these themes of the literary economy that we'll be discussing. So it's it's basically a story where you can kind of tell something about the process by which it was created, which is that it seems to start with a photograph. And the photograph represents this group of French writers um, associated with the journal Telquel, which you know in the in the 70s was kind of the hot um journal which a lot of the sort of structuralists and post structuralists as well as the kind of nouveau roman and sort of other very avant-garde french literary figures were were writing in and had a great deal of prestige um in that period so obviously he's writing this some sometime later but um he, you know, so it begins with this photograph that represents these figures, some of whom are um, quite central to this Telkel world of Parisian intellectuals and writers, some of whom are a little bit more peripheral. And then it, it just kind of spins out this odd narrative about the lives of these um, these sort of Parisian writers. And, you know, it's mostly just like pretty, um, pretty boring everyday stuff. It's like them, you know, just like stopping. And then getting a cognac at a cafe, and you know, describing their sort of sexual habits, and um, it's nothing—nothing nothing really happens. Um, but it's it's quite um, you know beautiful and strangely haunting and qu- and very funny. And um, I'll just read a passage from it that I you know think is is interesting and kind of crystallizing a couple of themes, you know, which which I think is maybe for me the passage that reveals what's really going on here, which is that there's a A minor character who um, Bolaño or the narrator imagines is outside of the frame of this photograph and who some of the characters are, who some of these figures are looking off, you know, off to the side at. And he imagines that it's a Central American writer. Who's sort of arrived in Paris and is somewhat frustrated and embittered. And he's um, he's basically trying to, in some way, get in with this, you know, hip crowd of, of important Parisian intellectuals. So it's, you know, a typical kind of literary story of a a sort of figure from the provinces, in this case the global provinces, who's kind of arrived at the center of things, the sort of cultural, um, center and is trying to get some kind of attention or approval from these important and powerful figures. So this character who does not appear in the photograph, but is imagined as just outside of the frame of it, um, is, um, you know, this kind of stand-in, I mean, Bolaño treats him quite ironically, but he's he's kind of a stand-in for Bolaño himself, who was um, you know never really part of uh any any particularly important literary scene right. right he he was part of these various kind of fringy avant-garde groups and then in his later life when he was writing fiction he was really living in like a small town on the coast of spain and yeah, not Latin not is, really yeah not, and not i think he would yeah.
1: be shocked if he saw what happened posthumously because he's i think just the outsider a, as a writer but also i think as a person so he'd be he'd be amazed what happened in post like 03, where he, you know, he, I think that's when he passed. So I, I think it's fascinating that every single character that we see that's a Bologna alter ego is just a peripheral outsider. And now he's yeah. become, we'll talk about that later, but he's become this, you know, the big, you know, insider from like the outside, basically.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So... You know, he and he never really tried particularly to to sort of um, pay homage to these powerful or important figures. Right. Um, he, he never really played the game in that way. Yeah. And so anyway, the this Central American, unnamed Central American character who's, you know, who's a little bit of a, a sort of sycophant, it seems, and is is kind of going to Paris and just trying to, you know, hang on the coattails of these important Figures, you know, represents a different kind of outsider writer who's really trying to, um, trying to gain some kind of foothold in the literary world by, you know, basically attaching himself socially to this, to this world of important people. So anyway, this passage I'll just read from the text that I, th- I think is um, encapsulates a lot of this. So the Central American is outside the frame of the photograph sharing that pristine and deceptive territory with the object of Guyota's gaze, an unknown woman armed only for the moment with her beauty. Their eyes will not meet. They will pass each other by like shadows, briefly sharing the same hazardous ambit, the itinerant theater of Paris. The Central American could quite easily become a murderer. Perhaps back in his own country, he will, but not here where the only blood he could possibly shed is his own. This pole Pot won't kill anyone in Paris. And actually, back in Tegucigalpa or San Salvador, he'll probably end up teaching in a university. As for the unknown woman, she will not be captured by Guyotas' asbestos nets. She's at the bar waiting for the boyfriend she'll marry before long, him or the next one, and their marriage will be disastrous, though not without its moments of comfort. Literature brushes past these literary creatures and kisses them on the lips, but they don't even notice. So, like much of Bolano's work, the story is it's literature about literature, um, and I think that um, that final line that describes this kind of brief encounter between the this sort of literary demi monde and and something else that's sort of outside of that is. Is a particularly interesting one but you know I've gone on enough about this what are your thoughts about this story and perhaps what it tells us about Bolaño's sort of larger project yeah and I mean you were going to say that you know, actually
1: that like final line I knew you were going because that to me almost encapsulates the entire Bolaño ethos which to me is there's a secret story in literature that so many of because in this story it's The first three pages are describing what all these writers are wearing in stark detail. And the first page of the story, there's a word that's italicized and it's posing. Obviously they're posing for a picture, but they're really, really posing. And I think so much of Bolaño's work is to get underneath this like LARPing that some like big time writers do that his entire life, like that's right now he's this big, huge writer. He'd be shocked that he the outsider became the insider because so much of his work was this love of writers, but a hatred also of probably a fake writer, a credentialed writer, which here you get you get three pages of every single thing they're wearing really showing this heightened state. Of these are people that know they're, know they're taking a picture because everything they do is narrative and they're aware of narrative. And then you have this outside character who kind of wants to get in that narrative. The fact that he's not makes him the actual true character in the story, which I think so much of his work is about that, that how do you escape the LARP, when you're this writer, when you're a writer. And I think what he does in so much of his work that he brings in, I don't want to say low tier, but just prostitutes, freaks, junkies, alcoholics, people who are not aware of the narrative myth-making, which is where the real story happens. That's a secret story. And so much of his great works always have that moment where there's a character who's an intellectual rubs up against some person who's not aware that they have this incredible story. And then this intellectual person isn't really an epiphany because there's nothing being learned, but it's a realization of this is the actual story. Like it's almost when you go to a bar, you've had a couple of drinks, and you go to the bathroom and you catch yourself in the mirror. And it's like a shocking thing because so much of what goes on in a bar is LARPing. You know that you know that you're in a bar, you're there to pick up or to be cool, and then you catch yourself this glimpse of reality. That's the actual story. And I think that's so much of his work, I think, strikes hard because of that. So much is being built to get that one moment, not really an epiphany, but it's just this truth that you know, but when you're so busy creating narrative, creating myth, you can't really get to it. And we see that here, I think in the story, especially.
0: Yeah. And I think there's something also just about this, you know, what I brought up before, this concept of a literary economy and how, you know, part of the paradox of this is that literature has to kind of omnivorously absorb what is outside of it in order to keep itself vital in some way. So I think on one hand, he's a writer who's, you know, and part of his impact is is the success with which he does that. And at the same time, um, I think his stories often, like this one, you know, are sort of about that process.
1: Hey, right. It's a good story because there he knows that he has to take these people, maybe from his life, these characters, and make them to literary products. So some of his weirder, funnier stories, these kind of stories, where you see that he creates these really weird conceits but inside these conceits you get these like nuggets of truth that we're like he's kind of winking and he's saying I know what I'm doing here and I have to kind of launder you know launder the secret story into now this piece of literature which is what happens here and I mean I love those first three pages because you get these like intellectuals that are posing so hard as if you read it you're like what's he doing here he's like every single thing is you know being detailed and then you get into the middle of the story and it's kind of they get taken out of the photograph and the narrator just creates this world for them. And it's just this world where they're just hanging out, having sex, being alone, where, where actual literature happens. And these highfalutin writers, they're not aware that that's where the literature is happening. It's just passing them by. But the great like moments where there's truth is when you're not lodged in the narrative. Once you're in the myth-making process, then things are passing you by because you're aware of this process. And I think so many writers are obsessed with like maybe lower tier people because they think, and maybe I don't know if it's true or not, but I've been in that situation where I, so much as a writer of fiction in the past, so much of my time was spent thinking about narrative, that if you're thinking about narrative so much, can you really be in the moment of narrative or you're just thinking about narrative? So you want to, there's some kind of gritty life that you think is there that probably is, I mean, I'm sure there is affectation and there is LARP and people who maybe are not in tune with, you know, creating narrative and creating myth, but it's not as affected in LARPY as like somebody who's an actual writer. And I think you feel that tension in his work. He's obviously creating this product this a literary product, but when he's winking at it, I think you can kind of do both here. I think he does both. The actual, the actual actual, story is this guy who's in the outside trying to get in. And that's the irony, because this kid's trying to get into the picture when he is the actual picture. He is the narrative.
0: Right, yeah. Um, and I, I mean, another thing that's kind of notable in this story is the something that is also really prominent in twenty six sixty six, which is this kind of alternation between this kind of lightness and and satire and this intimation of some kind of underlying horror. Um, and I, I think you know it's important that on one hand, you know, in some ways, this whole story he spins out with these telkel um you know parisian intellectuals you know it's quite if if people are familiar with the first section uh, the part about the academics in 2666 which you know is this really quite hilarious and brilliant kind of social satire of these um you know again the same kind of characters right these intellectuals who very much know that they're they're performing um, and that they're embodying a certain role of the intellectual at all times. Right. But then it's, it's all about, similarly to this, it's all about their kind of random foibles and um, the the kind of embarrassing, um, you know, hidden stories of their, of their kind of sordid everyday lives. And then on the other hand, you have obviously 2066 being a novel about the, um, the femicide epidemic in, in Northern Mexico. And so, Here, what you have is similarly that, and then you have this, he says, um, you know, maybe he's from South, when he first introduces this character, this unnamed outsider, it's first he's from South America, but then he says, no, he's actually from Central America. And then he mentions, you know, the countries he mentions are um, Honduras and El Salvador. So, you know, there's some kind of... um, yeah, and this is taking place in the 70s, right? So this is basically when there are all of these guerrilla insurgencies. There's a great deal of violence, genocide, and so on unfolding in those places. And this character, um, you know, but he's not concerned with that. He's just concerned with sort of getting in with these, right. these fancy Parisian um, writers. But then, you know, it describes him as having a, a sort of look of of horror in his eyes when he when he brushes into one of these people in the, in the hallway outside of the off the, you know, literary magazine offices. Um, it's, you know, it's essentially this, this strange glimpse inside him and it's, um, you know, it's, it's quite a different register, right? right. Because he, he has this look of, of horror in his eyes. Right. Um, and, and in fact it says, you know, he's, it describes him as being bitter um, at different points, but then at that point it sort of says that he's. He's a kind of, um, the, the bitterness is actually a kind of front concealing something deeper, which is this horror. And then there's this weird connection of him with Pol Pot, who, um, you know, famously studied in Paris um, before, you know, going off to mastermind a genocide. So, you know, there, there's something, you know, that, on one hand, what's creeping beneath the surface of this um of this, you know, um, pretentious world of these, these very, um, you know, these posing um, yeah, intellectuals I mean, yeah. is is this their kind of foible, sexual foibles yeah. and things like that. But on the other hand, it's something far darker and more disturbing.
1: Yeah, one of his great talents was able to toggle that kind of over the popularity with always this like impending doom under like all these stories that I mean and. And what's so great is you don't need this doom to overtake the story you kind of obviously some of the stories in some of the novels there is massive carnage but to me some of my favorite stories are the ones that it's just this underlying kind of ominous specter of doom that's just like over the over the entire story so you have these really funny ridiculous kind of i don't know slice of life stories where nothing really happens but there's still this like doom underneath so you're like this guy's you know just chasing whores is he gonna just you know be murdered by somebody and never happens but it's kind of just there and it's not an, basically all his work and i think that it, i think when he came into the scene that was a big thing why he became so popular i think in america where he was allowed to kind of do these i mean have this tone that we didn't see you know, here in american fiction at the time that I, even now we don't see which is why he, he's still so popular that there's this kind of and like if you were to workshop his stories you can't teach that like how do you tell a writer create more doom or you know make it seem like it's going to just like tip over into chaos without doing that, you can't you can't teach them. That's his genius, and it's incredible that because if you read it in English, that still translates. Like that will still cross over from Spanish, which is I think how great he is as a writer that that actually happens. That you you don't lose that doom in the translation, which which is I mean, how does he do it? I don't He's probably a genius, but it's there. It's, in, it's under all these stories that like I, I was at a pre-pandemic, I was at a, a coffee shop. They asked me, "What are you reading?" It's a story. And they said, what's it about? And I was like, Oh, it's just about people hanging out at coffee shops and like doom. And that's basically what they're about. I mean, you can't really get past that. You have to read the stories to get into the mood. Like plot is so incidental. Even though he has these crazy conceits, plot really is incidental. It's about creating a mood. And then he has ways to do it. Dialogue, monologues, there is ways. But there's plenty of writers who do that and it fails.
0: Yeah, this I, I was just going to read this. Um, so the, the exact phrasing of that. That moment, which I think, you know, we could argue might be the climactic moment of the whole story, is when he bumps into this woman who's not, um, you know, the narrator doesn't seem to really know who she is or what her association is with the, the, um, the Telkel crowd, who he calls Marie-Thérèse Réveillé. And she's, um, you know, she's sleeping with, um, with uh, Guyotard. Who's one of the more well-known figures, but anyway, so she's a marginal figure too. Right. And, and she runs into the Central American in the hallway or in the stairwell outside of the um, office. And it says, they look at each other again. And what she sees beneath the expedient mask of bitterness is a well of unbearable horror and fear. So the, the bitterness is kind of the more surface level thing, right. Where he's this, he's this outsider who's sort of frustrated at his exclusion from the glittering world of these, you know, important writers and intellectuals and the way they kind of treat him, you know, condescendingly and don't seem to be particularly interested in him. But, but the bitterness is actually a mask for something else, right. Which is this, this far deeper, horror and fear. And I mean, I think just this combination, you know, it's, it's quite unusual, I would say, in a lot of the North American literature, where you have a kind of, um, you know, you have, you have writers who are more or less satirical, or, you know, doing some kind of comedy of manners. And then you have writers who are, I don't know, dealing with genocide, or these kinds of (laughs) darker, Mm -hmm. darker historical themes. And it's, you know, I think what's bizarre about this from that perspective is the way that he brings those two things together.
1: Yeah. I mean, so much of American fiction or the books that are popular. Or, yeah. It's, just, it's these, you know, comedies of manners of the elite world that are some, I mean, they're they're pitched as biting satires or whatever, and they incisive is the great word you see in all the blurbs, books incisive, it's a biting satire. And they never are. I mean, they're just as funny as the publishing industry will allow you to be, which you can only take down sacred cows that have already been taken down, or you can kind of, or you're not punching up or down, you're punching them just horizontally, basically. And then you have these really, yeah, these like, you know, books of like, you know, multicultural doom, you know, somebody came, which are fine and important, but they're just utterly humorless. So you have these two different genres that are, win all the awards, and then you have the space where he only traffics him, which is why I think, even now, still, he's still probably the most popular writer. It's not an American writer. There's a few others, Wellbeck, Newscar, but he's still up there. He's been dead for almost 20 years because he's trafficking in that line where you're reading this story that's funny, and, yeah, it's kind of ominous, and then you get this, like, line that kind of shifts the entire narrative. It's like, okay, this guy might not be something evil in this story, but something might happen later, and the story ends. That's the Bolano story. And there is a there's a little formula, but, you know, but it works because he knows – he knows how to do it. And it is toggling that space between fighting satire and just always this impending doom that's just lying under the surface that sometimes it froths up and most of the time you don't have to. And that's where the stories live, kind of in that space.
0: Yeah, I think another writer who's um, who I thought of in relation to this one because of the Central American reference is uh, Castellanos Moya, <clears throat> who I think also does that of, I mean, his novels are all about um, Central American genocide and, you know, murder and uh, related matters, right? So they're all very much about the extremely dark contemporary history of the region of the world that he's from and that he's actually permanently exiled from, right? He's basically unable to go back because he would almost certainly be be killed or at least have to, you know, yeah, live under kind of heavy writers,
1: yeah. I think guard. The, I think of him, Bolaño, Bernhard to me is like the really big, like Thomas Bernhard, Austrian writer who was this like ascetic writer with these monologues. And I think he was like, Maybe the biggest precursor to like that kind of writing where it's just this like acidic monologue. Like he had a novel where he just sat the entire premise, is, he's sitting at a party, some literary party narrator, and he's he just the entire novel is him bashing these other writers, saying, you know, they're they're lousy writers, horrible people. And that was a like you read that now, and you're like, you could do this kind of shit back in the day. And obviously, you might have failed doing it, but when I see Bolaño, that's what I see. It's a lot of Bernhard there, that there's like toggling between just su- super funny and this rage underneath it that I don't see it anymore. American fiction, I don't see it at all, is you probably, you can only hit certain levels of acidic satire and pearls before somebody will say, okay, this is reaching levels that are is culturally not proper or correct. So if you're a Bolaño, if you're somebody who's an outsider, they're kind of allowed to go into that lane, is I think... In, not only is he from that part of the world, but he's also dead. So he's allowed to just, like, we can't even, like, we can't cancel him. We can't bother him. The guy literally, you know, came from this other part of the world. He's kind of some noble savage type, and he's dead. So he's totally allowed. So you get this whole entire scene in America that they want to read this stuff. How do I know? He's popular still. So they want to read this kind of stuff, but the American writer really isn't allowed. So you get this guy who kind of slides in there. And if you see all the early blurbs from, like, 03, 05, you see how the lit scene has totally changed. That everything was like, oh, this is dark, it's you know, it's totally fucked up. And so all these like writers wanted to read that kind of work. It's just they knew they kind of couldn't write it. But here's this guy who wrote it already, he was dead, so you can read it, which is why it's still popular. New is the same thing that he basically is he's he's just writing, I mean, it's almost like anti anti-fiction, probably. It's just he's diving into his life and he's been in trouble. Back home, but you can't even do that in America. Some writers, you have a uh, this poet, a uh, Ben Lerner, who's kind of doing that. But even there, he isn't as wild as Nuscard. Like ben, somebody like Lerner, he will stop when he knows that he's tipping over into kind of a space that he might get into trouble because he's you know part of part of this scene here. So you have Nuscard, Walbeck, obviously, and Bolano, who are those writers that I see are kind of created the space or it was created for them that they're allowed to really just write what they want. And the American, you know really white elite audience is allowed to traffic in that, get their rocks off with those writers. But the American writer, it it kind of can't do that. So I think that's a cool space to talk about, that we have this scene now where like those guys can't get canceled because they're kind of considered these outsider freaks. But if an American writer was writing all these themes, like a a Welbeck or a Bolaño, that book does not exist or it's online somewhere. Some crazy kid online is, it's on Twitter probably, or 4chan or something like that.
0: Yeah, I mean this um, you know, you you mentioned Bernhard. I mean, I you know, the Castellanos Moya, who I brought up before, right, has this book called Revulsion Thomas Bernhardt in San Salvador. And it's, you know, it's basically what got him canceled so that he essentially can't go back to El Salvador. And he um, you know, it's it really does exactly what Bernhardt did with Austria, right? Which is a lot of his novels were just this completely savage, like yeah. systematic takedown of the national myths. Um, that left nothing and no one, you know, um, untouched and, um, you know, Castellanos Moya with that novel really does the same thing for, for El Salvador, which, you know, I think, um, I mean, it's, it's remarkable, you know, it was actually one of his, I think it's his first novel, but it was the last to be published, um, or the most recent to be published, I believe. And, you know, I think part of it is that the whole discourse around Central America and sort of you know, the, the Anglosphere is this kind of, um, you know, going back to, you know, it was mostly like these kind of very, um, earnest lefty right. kind of narratives where you were just supposed to have this, you know, sort of reverent attitude towards these beleaguered people who were, you know, long suffering under these horrible dictatorships. And it's not that that <laughs> isn't, doesn't have some truth to it, but you know, the fact that you would write a novel, that's an attack on the people as well as the regime, yeah. um, you know, is quite um, you know, it's it's really amazing. I mean, he didn't get away with it in yeah. El Salvador. In fact, you know, it I mean he got canceled to a far greater degree than pretty okay. much anyone could be here. Okay. But um, you know, that it's it's the kind of book that is very hard to imagine um anyone writing in this kind right, of right. literary space. So again, it's this that kind of um the the freedom of the uh, the total outsider. And I mean I think um yeah, and just Bolaño um, you know, he really, you know, part of what's interesting about him, and I I feel like there is this attempt to kind of recuperate him into this, you know, I feel like a lot of the I mean, I studied um Latin, you know, I lived in Latin America for a number of years and studied Latin American literature and university. And um, you know, that there is this tendency for that world to be dominated by this kind of earnest left-wing perspective, right? And so Bolaño is interesting because biographically he actually you know he he grows up in chile and then mexico he goes back to chile basically to participate in allende's um revolution democratic socialist revolution um then he is captured and tortured sort of barely escapes and so that obviously marks him you know in terms of the sense of horror and 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 doom that is omnipresent throughout his work it's it's hard to imagine that isn't one of the main uh, one of the drivers. main factors behind that but at the same time he's utterly unsentimental about um you know left-wing politics um and again he's he's willing to mix this you know extremely serious um treatment of essentially evil right political evil political violence with this kind of um, hilarious and bizarre sort of satire in a way that's totally indiscriminate and lacks any kind of piety or, you know, sense of, of kind of earnest reverence of the the sort that you might expect more in the sort of North American context.
1: Yeah. When I first read them, I was at the Iowa Writers Workshop, just the top creative writing program in the country, whatever. So I was trying to write fiction and there, yeah, it's a really well-mannered kind of fiction. So, I read this guy, I read a story in the New Yorker, and it was so out of the line of what I was writing, what I was reading in class and what I was being told to read. I'm like, who is this guy? And it was that, that there was no pious listener whatsoever. And I come from Miami, uh, probably you could say I'm from the hood, it's the way I grew up. So I wanted to read and write work that was just incisive, actually incisive and truthful in that way, without kind of, you know, making it this kind of, oh, this is a victimized PLC character. I want to write just like people like my cousins who, who are kind of, they're not aware that they're incredible characters, like Bologna characters. They're just people living life. And if they had any iota of understanding of character or narrative, that will destroy them as characters. So you want to write these kind of characters. And it's interesting. I was in graduate school 10 years ago. So I might've been the first Cuban American to actually go to the Writers' Workshop. I think I wasn't. What's fascinating is every story that I workshopped then would get me tossed from the program now. So 10 years ago, what was really cool there was, oh, here's this guy from Miami, Cuban. So the white readers, they wanted this like urban exotic experience that I write those stories. So they liked it, they loved them, they're very popular. But if I like, fast forward 10 years and now if I were to workshop those stories and they're not filtered through some kind of like woke whiteness angle, now those are like Bad characters. 10 years ago, there were just guys in the hood trying to get by, you know, just like this A life story. And that was totally fine. 10 years ago. Yes. Even back. But even then you're kind of playing up to the white reader, but it was in a way that you could have fun. Nobody would tell you, oh, this guy is bad because of whiteness. I mean, they would just say, oh, he's he's bad because he's he's in a bad situation. And that was you could still write those stories and get away with it. So I've seen like in 10 years how that's shifted. That now. If you want to write that like Bolaño character, that character who's like grows up in the hood, who's an urban character, he better be filtered through that lens, and that's what's been lost. Like I saw, like my career kind of take that shift. Like I graduated, I was going to be the next big thing, and I got a massive agent. And then I waited a few years, finished the novel, and then I saw the cultural tide shift, and it was fascinating how the stories went from being oh really interesting and exotic writings from like Miami to now oh. Maybe these are a problem in some way. And that's why you can't. That's why I think he's still so popular because he can still he's not from here culturally at all. He's dead. So you can kind of the American uh, woke reader still has this desire to read this stuff, but you can't get it from the American writer.
0: Yeah. And he can also be redeemed because he has this kind of appropriate pull. I think because of his basically because he has this, you know, which was obviously a terrifying and awful experience of of you know because he has this association with allende and the chilean revolution it's you know it it kind of gives him a pass in a sense because it gives him some kind of left-wing street cred even though again i think he's you know extremely unusual and you know i would say being able to treat politically serious themes without any sentimentality or or dogmatic you know sense of orthodoxy um um you know, and he really did you know, if you read his essays and reviews, like he really made fun of other Latin American writers yeah. who were you know conventionally left wing like right. he was he um he was extremely contemptuous of that, which you know is a major feature of that literature um but you know so it's not as if i mean I think that the dominant strains of Latin American literature have long you know featured a lot of that kind of right. um that kind of left wing piety. Yeah. And, you know, not some of that, some of the literature produced by that was actually genuinely great, although probably in spite of that, rather than because of it, you know, if you think of like, you know, great communist poets, um, like, you know, Neruda or Vallejo, but, um, you know, it's, it's not a, um, it's definitely, um, even within that world, that, that kind of ability to balance a sense of, a sense of seriousness with. And you know of really again profound sort of dread and yeah. and terror with um of of the sort that the kind of p- political developments in many of those countries would reasonably provoke with this kind of playful and um you know extremely successful um sort of humor is is quite quite a, quite an unusual ability um and yeah, I think he just uh he really um and, and, you know, just a, a further aside, I mean, I, I don't know if you have thoughts about this, but, you know, in terms of the shift you're describing, I mean, to me, one of the most remarkable things of the past five years is, you know, the shift towards this incredible tenor of humorlessness in the the sort of elite, you know, literary and um, sort of cultural spheres, right, where you have to just have this um, intense, you know, sort of, put, po- you know, it's going going back to posing, right? This intense pose of sort of moral seriousness, which is particularly amazing because, you know, the Trump era is nothing if not one of the most right. hilarious. It's like yeah. completely hilarious, right? I've I mean, everything that's, that's happened that is just like a total-
1: so The Trump era is that it was the funniest era we've probably ever had. And nobody yeah. writing about it. Like Trump was the greatest cultural critic of his era. Like on Twitter, there was nobody was allowed to, like the guy's fucking hilarious. Somebody write, you know, a funny piece, but it was all this like somberness, and that yeah. carried over to the lit scene, like the lit scene, the art scene. Everything now is this like affected somberness. That if you're writing a character, he must be victimized by every single social ill. Look, maybe he even is, but I don't want to write that story. Sometimes, like, why can't you just be a fucked-up guy who's not aware of the social ills? Like that can happen, but that 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 isn't a somber story. That is a funny story, and that's a shift that I saw happen the last five years in. Especially like it's amazing. Like I had a workshop when I was at Iowa. It was eight guys in a workshop, and every single story that was workshop there would now be labeled as just a demonic story. And back then, nobody. Said, it was just funny, and they had it was a bad story. They were bad because they weren't working on stories, but it wasn't based on any kind of uh, these people are bad. You I mean, could be funny, and and that's what's been lost culturally. It's just like affected somberness that it just sucks the life out of just any kind of artwork because obviously they're not. They're not artists anymore. Like you'll be on Twitter, and you'll see some award-winning poet will like do a tweet thread about like public health. I'm like, are you fucking Fauci? Are you a poet? Like be a poet. I mean, it's the worst. And everybody's doing this now, where it's like if you're everybody has to be writing think pieces. Everybody has to be writing takes. So I think like the last genre we have now is just like the take thick economy. Like everybody just breaks my heart. While I see like some poet now is has like a 17-page thread about like whiteness. I'm like, just write a poem. Like you can do that too, it's fine, but it's probably you can't, and that's the problem. Now, with the system, you really can't do that. You want to win the awards, you want to get published for the meager crumbs that they give you, you got to play this little game. And that's what's happened.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I think in some ways we're pointing to a sort of uh, weird parallel development where, on one hand, you know, the world of kind of literature, letters, ideas even has been kind of evacuated of any autonomy, right? And so what you're describing there, it's like, it's just been colonized by politics as not, you know, there are versions of politics that, you know, have always been part of that. But I mean, politics as defined by the cable news, 24 hour news cycle plus Twitter, right? Like, so a very extremely narrow um and impoverished version of politics right yeah and and that's essentially evacuated all the all the sort of autonomous possibility of creativity and independence from that world but then on the other hand what's bizarre is you have trump who's kind of as you said the kind of great cultural critic and great cultural figure so we have on the other hand politics as embodied in the figure of the president actually becoming this weird space where you can, you know, if you ignore the actual, you can completely ignore the actual sort of policy content right. of anything he says, just in a purely formal sense.
1: No, it's yeah.
0: utterly um, ingenious and full yeah, no. of um, immense humor and creativity. Yeah. Yeah. I
1: come from a writing background, so I can, and now I'm a cultural critic or whatever, but I'm first and foremost a fiction writer. So. When I would look at Trump's tweets, I could I could pull out the politics and be like, "This is hilarious stuff." Like I don't know who's writing it. If it's a team of people, but some of this stuff is just the highest level writing that I'm seeing right now. And he was, yeah, he was the greatest cultural critic of his presidency just on his Twitter. And there was nobody who said, "We have four years here; he's going to be gone." This is so bizarre, so over the top, so ridiculous. Somebody writes something ridiculous, and it was all this like somberness. You had Georgia Saunders wrote some piece that was like. America's dead. I'm like, Oh my God, even if it is dying, make it funny. You know? But no, you can't do that now.
0: Yeah. All well, right. And then you have like the great, you know, people who are very influential on me. Cause I was, you know, the one I think of is William Gibson, right. Who, cause I like grew up reading a lot of sci-fi, right. Who just became like the most tiresome sort of resistance lib yeah. Twitter thread. It's just like, you know, so to me, that was kind of what symbolized it. Right. That, that these, these great kind of visionaries of, of our time just, are, you know it's as if their their brains are removed and just replaced yeah, yeah. with this kind of bucket full of cliches and yeah. you know just yeah, this I mean, this kind yeah. of po- you know faux somber sort of political posturing.
1: And I, and I was probably when I was when I left the workshop, I was probably maybe the last couple of years before things really turned. And it's really crazy. It, it was almost overnight. There was still there was still a time maybe seven years ago you can write funny kind of acidic fiction that wasn't about. All the cultural, political issues—you could do that, and that just turned in a way. And then, obviously, Trump came into town, and that Trump became the last poet, the last writer, probably of our time. It kind of, it kind of swallowed up all the writers. And I mean, we're going to see post-Trump what that looks like, but we're still in that space. I mean, and, yeah. And if you're writing the kind of work that I write, which is urban kind of fiction, it has to be really somber. Like, if it's about POC, it has to be even more somber. It has to be about, like, you know, some, like, horrible white boss beat beat the poor Cuban man down. I'm like, ah, oh, like, this is so boring. Like, that, that isn't my life. That isn't what I see day to day. I don't want to write that. But that's And I can write those stories. Like, I can write a perfect little token good boy story, is what I call them. That I can make the character suffer because of, like, the bad white boss. And there be an epiphany at the end where he says, oh, Hillary's great. I can do that. But who wants to do that? And that's the shift that happened. And I look at my old stories in my hard drive, like if I were to send those out to an agent, they'd think I'm some like horrible person. And these were just milk toast little slice of life urban stories. That's all they are.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I think this, you know, it goes to this theme that's often brought up, which um, has to do with, you know, representation. Right. And who gets represented, um, who finds themselves represented in, in literature today and who doesn't. Right. And, you know, I think it's um I think it's actually, you know, it's a mistake for people who are critical of the, you know, the sort of liberal consensus on these things to, you know, completely dismiss that as an issue. Right. Cause I think part of what you're saying is that um, there are issues of representation, right. Because yeah, yeah. there, there's you're a that. kind of ideological yeah. um, monoculture that determines who and what kinds, you know, who, wh- what, kind of people, what kinds of stories and so on get, get represented and what don't today. And that is, you know that that is meaningful um, in all sorts of ways. Yes. So, so I think you know people who are critical of this kind of discourse um, are often um, you know too too quick to dismiss that because you know it, it's it, it's not that it's not real. It's just that it's it's a lot more complicated than the the typical um, version of the story tells us. Yeah, and
1: in my um, like I take like all those like, little POC boxes, like I take all them I mean, I guess I'm a heterosexual male, so that's a problem. But I take like, you know, the actual, you know, pe- people of color, all that writing about these people. But if you writing about urban PLC, who, who did it come from Cuba, all, all these things. But if you don't frame it under the victimized lens, that's the problem. And that and that's really sad because I mean, you can't write, I mean, so much of yeah, I write fiction, but so much of it does come from elements of my life and things that I see and people that I see. And these people, even if they are victims, they don't even know that. So why do I have to impose that on them if I'm writing And you kind of have to, like I like now, I've submitted stories, not in a long time, but recently, and you could tell when, like an editor wouldn't know what to tell you. And it's because this is a fine publishable story, but this was a white editor who couldn't tell a person of color. You're writing the wrong person of color story. Is that obviously would they would cross a line there. So it would just be like, oh, this is has a problem. And I know what the problem is, but nobody can kind of, Say Well, they can't say it because obviously then they're overstepping their bounds as a good ally or whatever. And that's the problem that art literature, it's not based on just merit. I mean, it has to be first and foremost, you have to toe this line. And I might even agree with you politically on that line, but I don't want to write that kind of fiction all the time.
0: Right. So, and again, I, I you know, part of what I would say is like, I'm not, I'm not a particular fan of the, you know, some kind of idea of like art for art's sake or something like that. Um, but you know, I think what what we see today is it's not simply a matter of like the politicization, but it's the mat- it's a matter of, of a very narrow and and impoverishing version of that, right? Where where again, I would say it's it's really the the sort of political monoculture of a certain you know set of professional realms that determine um, that determine what gets what gets seen and and published and what doesn't, and that that you know it essentially becomes. Um, the criterion becomes, I mean, you know, there's, I don't think there's, I don't, I'm not, not under the illusion. There's some kind of non-ideological realm where, where this might be happening, but, um, it just in an extremely, um, in an extremely simple sense, we might say like there's a difference between accepting that, you know, things are shaped by ide- culture is shaped by ideology and, and seeing that, you know, essentially what well, we're, what we're witnessing is the conversion of all of culture into like a propaganda arm of the democratic Party, like of the democratic national committee. I mean, that's like how narrow it is and how narrow the sense of, of like what, what politics is.
1: Yeah. Like Um, it's not even like radical. Like if you were telling me it was like radical, crazy leftist writing, that'd be fun. It's even even that it's just this like Hillary democratic party. that's, That's like running fiction now, which is totally boring. Like, I mean, so if you're telling me it was like, Radical writing of the left, where it was like, well, "Oh, you know, like that'd be fine," because there'd be at least an opportunity for it to be incisive and sharp and funny and radical. But it's not that; it's just the most milk toast politics. That is, that is a thing. It's it's all about Twitter. It's all about the thing, and that's what runs. Like everybody who you know who who like runs like BuzzFeed runs publishing. So that's what we're getting. It's just these are the same people. So there isn't radical on any side.
0: Yeah, and. Right. And that's, I think that's the other point, right? That it's, it's, it's actually, I I mean, in a sense, I would say it's a kind of depoliticization in the sense that it's like, it's an attempt to deactivate any cultural potential that kind of pushes against this dominant mainstream um, version of sort of democratic politics that, um, you know, is increasingly just uh, monopolizing the entire sort of culture industry.
1: Yeah. And I'm first and foremost, I write fiction. So I, I want to write and read work that is entertaining and funny and sharp. The last thing I want is affected somberness. And that's what I would say. So we have not, if it's not affected somberness where it's just these like poor broken down characters who can't even like raise their shoulders, then we don't want it. Especially if you're like a POC writer. I mean, God forbid a POC character has agency and it's just like behaving badly because he's a bad, because he's just a bad person. You can't do that. And, and and that just creates that just it's an entire scene where like I can there might be one or two funny writers that are working right now. I mean, that's it. And only because they're already grandfathered in it. But if you're like a young, funny writer, I mean, you're probably not even if you're you know, if you're Hispanic, and you're, and you're writing like, you know, the proper PLC characters, but if you do it in a funny way, that might also be a problem too. Cause there isn't like that's been lost the way like there isn't any way anymore to understand humor. Like that's been lost the last five years. It, like, humor now is considered by default to be, like, bad. Uh, that also happens. So if you're, like, if you can make fun of things during this, during this climate, that already puts you, like, in a bad space. Like, why are you being funny? Why are you trying to be funny?
0: Yeah, and I, I wonder whether, you know, because I'm, I'm definitely somebody who, you know, um, and Bolaño is an example of this, but, like, I think I still just find generally like Spanish language literature or Latin American literature, like, you know, just much more varied and um, full of surprises than, than I do from, from uh, the Anglosphere. And I mean, you know, there are ways in which uh, uh, I'm going to bring up a way in which maybe that's, that's not true becoming less true, but um, you know, I think a simple explanation of that in part is that, you know, Latin America is like a politically very fragmented place Um, and so there isn't, there isn't really the possibility of create, I mean, there is historically this kind of left wing, you know, relatively strong kind of left wing, um, tendency among, among the writers. But, um, you know, I think even there, if you think about a lot of them, like, you know, Garcia Marquez, who's like, you know, best friends with, with Fidel and so on, you know, he's still somebody who I think you can, you can read without, um, feeling like you're, being immersed in a kind of, yeah. you know, propagandistic. I mean, there, there's, I, f- I find there's very little or no trace of that um, yeah. in his, in his work. So, you know, there was at least a sense of a certain autonomy that, that I think has remained relatively strong, but, but then also because it's just such a politically fragmented world, you don't have this <clears throat> concentration of a, a sort of political and cultural mono, sort of um, monopoly around this particular part, you know, political party's agenda as you've seen here. So I think that that does open up some possibilities yeah. that, that are, that are harder to uh, harder to achieve just because of the kind of social dynamics of this world, right. That it's like based in basically one or a couple of cities, you know, the publishing world, and it's all run by people of very similar profiles. And that means that they basically have the same politics and the same worldview. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. Cause
1: yeah. I will, I I'll talk about this stuff. And I mean, if you even say this, people think you're some kind of like reactionary person. But I mean, I'm not, I'm by nature, not very political. I'm a writer, come from the creative writing world, and I want to write fiction. The only reason that I now do what I do, critic, whatever you want to call it, is because I kind of, I realized that there isn't a space anymore because it is such a small little ecosystem. It's literally 25 people who just go back and forth between this house to that agency, you know, to bus feeding back and forth really is that many people like it, it is really that small like in two neighborhoods like in two streets in New York that really is it so you make the calculation okay what, what do you do if you write and you want to keep writing you either dirty word pivot into some kind of cultural critic uh, kind of area or you kind of go anonymous and kind of just write into the ether which I guess you can do but if you want a readership that's almost impossible I mean so I'd be curious to see going forward where there'll be, where there'll be another space for writers and I'm not sure because I I have a very small platform. But when I tweet about the lit scene, I get DMs. People tell me, oh, start the scene. I'm like, shit, if I got to start the scene, we're in trouble. So, I mean, maybe in five, six, 10 years, but there is an energy there. It's just people are so afraid of even saying this like basic stuff we're saying because if somebody is a writer writing American fiction, they already come from a certain understanding of the culture. They come from that culture. So they know if they say the wrong thing or they messed up, it's over. So you need like, I'm one of the few people And I wouldn't say I'm of that culture because I came from outside that culture and I kind of was able to kind of get in. But I still think I'm an outsider of it. But if you come from inside that culture, you can't say anything. So you have all these people that want something, but they know they're either teaching in academia or they want the meager little prizes. So they can't So it would have to come from outside or from like some other institution, maybe. And I maybe even thought maybe the right could possibly do something. But the right is completely cringe. So they can't do anything when it comes to creative writing or art. So that's dead too. Like people tell me, oh, you know, get funded by some right-wing think tank. I'm like, it's like, come on. I mean, so it's either you have this cringe side on the right, and then on the left, this total just woke, milk toast, affected sadness. So where does that leave? Just the regular writer. It kind of leaves them just in the ether online. You see some online that are anonymous. You see people, I mean, I think the great American writing is happening on Twitter, on 4chan, on YouTube comments. Just crazed people who are creating art and writing outside the institutions who have no idea of what's happening so how do you pull those in if you pull them in you probably already ruin them for starters but even if you had some you know some kind of structure it'll probably be funded by some other side that has will kind of want to temper this stuff down which is why people say oh will the right create art No, of course not there's no art there i mean because the right views any kind of transgressive work obviously is problematic in its own way it has to be this like you know Thomas Kincaid kind of static that I don't want to do that so what
0: yeah, happens right and and they you know and and they're just as eager to politicize it and you know absorb it into this um you know this essentially propagandistic function yeah. as as the left are right so yeah it's i mean i kind of want to bring in a kind of framework that i that i've found useful um you know over the years and you know, that I think is like kind of, I mean, is interesting for the the Bolano story and also just for everything we've been discussing, which is so. There is this French uh, critic named Pascal Casanova who has this book called uh, "The World Republic of Letters," and it's basically it's inspired by Pierre Bourdieu, right? Who was sort of the sociologist interested in um, you know questions of prestige and um, how. You know, these different forms of capital, which social capital, cultural capital operate alongside, you know, more ba- basic economic motives. And so I think, um, you know, so Casanova introduces this idea of literary capital. Right. And she basically argues that um, you can actually historically kind of map out literary capital in space. Right. Because literature tends to be this phenomenon that gets concentrated in certain cities. Right. And she specifically says that sort of historically Paris served that function, right? And so I think we can read Bolano's labyrinth as kind of being about that, right? And historically, you know, you had Latin American writers going back to the nineteenth century who sort of, you know, all tried to go to Paris, and in some in some cases succeeded, in other cases didn't. Um, and you also had like, you know, Rubén Darío, who's like the great poet um, of sort of, I mean, he's called modernism in in that world, although he's really more of a kind of um you know almost like a a sort of symbolist or aesthete um kind of figure who's like writing these poems and stories set in Paris before he even goes there right it's like the image is already kind of central to his imagination and then of course he ends up going there and you know so so there's this idea that you your accrual of literary capital is hardly something you can kind of map out in space by how close or far you are from the centers of the literary world, like Paris. And, you know, so that, that story labyrinth is kind of about that, right. It's, it's about this character trying to kind of insert himself in that world um, and, and seemingly being rebuffed. And, and yet, you know, I think the other aspect of it that we've kind of been talking about, which we can think about Bolaño's consecration in these terms is that, you know, on one hand, there's a, there's a way that you're, um, you know, when you're coming from the outside, you're kind of um, trying to integrate yourself into, you know, what will allow you to be accepted in that world. But then the other complicating factor is that the, the literary center needs to kind of bring, you know, it, you can think of it, at least the classic version of it in kind of imperialist terms, right? It, it needs to kind of bring in raw materials from the periphery right. yeah. that, it kind of, um, that it can then kind of process and appropriate and create new value, Right. right. And so it's, it's an interesting process where you, you kind of need, on one hand, you have this incredible centralization. But then on the other hand, you need um, a constant process of drawing in more um, new raw materials from outside of that space in order to kind of keep the process of like accumulation of literary capital going. And I mean, I, you know, I was interested in like you, for example, like you wrote an essay about Philip Roth um, last year. <clears throat> and your own kind of relationship with him. And, you know, this isn't quite what what you were writing about, but, you know, if you think for example of like Jewish American writing, you know, a half a century ago, right. That was clearly, when you think of people like Bellow and Roth, um, you know, that was clearly a sort of w- one of these processes by which, you know, you had this kind of wasp literary scene, right. Which then, you know, started like drawing in and sort of consecrating people from these these sort of historically outsider groups, right. and that was that was part of how American literature sort of revitalized itself right. at that at that point. Um, you know, and often these figures had a kind of wildness to you know. If you think of Bellow or Roth, right, they That's had a been kind been, of yeah. a kind of wildness or even savagery yeah. to them, right? It's been lost. That,
1: yeah, back then when you allowed the wild person in, he was allowed to be wild. Now, if you're allowed now if you're allowed in, you must be possibly a wild person who had to tame yourself or probably somebody who was never wild at all, who just has some kind of like, you know, third or fourth generation Cuban or Mexican who's been in America for like 100 years and now can play the part of the good little, you know, multicultural little story dancer. But that's what's been lost. Yeah, you know, Roth, Bello, these were these were wild writers who were allowed to be wild. And then the, and then that was the kind of fertilizer that kept, that kind of recreated the scene and made it bigger, made it blow up. And now we have this kind of circular rotted soil that never gets fertilized because you're not bringing in any actual good sod or energy. It's just writers who know that to be allowed in, they got to play that kind of, I mean, kind of play that little game where now there's just enough wildness, but it's still under like the umbrella of that somberness. So if you can kind of if you're a Black writer or a Cuban writer, you can kind of throw a little bit of the spice in, but it really, but it better be really, really tasteless. Like, it better not be spicy at all. And that's the problem. Like, I, I like, wrote those stories. From like, I can write a perfectly tasteless little Cuban little Miami story. I mean, I know how to do it. I know what it looks like. And then I have all these other stories nobody's ever seen that are the real Miami stories. And, and that's what I did. I did for a long time. And you can do that for a long time. And, I mean, if I would have kept going, I surely would have maybe... But it's just, at a certain point, it's personality-wise, you hit a wall where you're like, I, I can't be this little token dancer anymore. It's just not the way that I'm built. And that's what's been lost, that you got to dance a little token jig if you want in. And it's just insulting, and it's boring. And that's why the scene, the literary scene, is very, very boring. There isn't anybody who's brought in that has energy. And the ones that are allowed in, like we said, are the actual foreigners from like other parts of the world who are not, who they can't be blamed for being... Not woke, because they live in other parts of the world, or they're dead. So that's what's providing the scene: dead writers. And and if they're dead, they don't. There's a limit to what they can produce because they're dead. And if they come from other cultures that are, that are outside of America, they're not going to foment the American scene. And that's what we're seeing.
0: One thing that's happened since then is the greater professionalization, particularly through academia, of literature. Right. And so, you know, if if you think of these. Um, these academic, you know, in the Bologna story, we have a more traditional version, right, which goes back you can find version, you know, in, in the 19th century novel, it's usually like just people from the provinces coming into Paris yeah. or coming into London and trying to make it, right, so he's literally just like showing up at this center of kind of literary capital and prestige and sort of asking them to pay attention to him, yeah. right, and now, what you have is a much more you know so it's really just like you show up and you try to strong arm your way into this world, right yeah. whereas now we have this much more genteel process right that yeah. passes yeah. through yeah. these kinds yeah. of these kinds of um, finishing schools right where you're you're not only being, um, you're yeah. not only being instructed in in craft or something like that but you're being instructed in the kind of ideology and mores yeah. of this and, yeah. and sort of yeah. politet of this world
1: yeah. the mFA world is i I had many, I went to the top creative writing program and I had a lot of peers who are great writers and very many who, when they failed or stop being writers, they became like lawyers. So that, so that tells you what's happening. If you can become a lawyer and a poet or vice versa, that tells me that what is being drawn into these schools is just the same elite people who can be poets for a little bit, then be lawyers and then be cultural critics. And that's what's happening. So Everybody being funneled in there is coming from the same background. And if you get somebody like me, who's not from that background, but got there, the only way to do it was some like insane autodidactic thing that I did for years that probably says that I'm crazy, that you have to literally like, if somebody would have told me to get these credentials, you have to do this for like 15 years, I would have said, no way, I'm going to have a nervous breakdown. Since I didn't know, you just kind of do it. And that's the only way, but what do you learn? You learn how to affect all of this. You learn how to sound. You learn what to say, what not to say. So if I was teaching some creative writing class here in Miami now and I came across like a Bolaño-esque uh, talent, if I want this person to get to the Ayer Writers Workshop, I got to do, if I want to destroy him to get there, what has to be done is I have to teach him all the manners and all the norms. And and that's what's happening. Like you get, you get institutions where it's, you can be a lawyer and you can be a doctor, you can be a poet, it's all the same people. So, and Talking back about just this, like, you know, fermentation of talent, it's all the same people that are on the soil. So I have plenty of peers who ended up just, yeah, they were a poet for a few years and then they just, you know, became a doctor. And that's great for them, but that just tells you it's all the same. So these elite programs and these elite schools are all drawing the same talent. So a writer or lawyer is the same thing now. And that's the problem. Somebody savage is probably not going to be able to be a lawyer and a poet. He's probably going to be a poet. Bolaño recently. I saw his business card. I don't know where I found this, but he was in Spain, had a business card and it said, Poeta ivago," Poet and Vagabond. And and that's the Bolaños ether, uh, ethos. And now if you meet a poet, it'll say poet. And obviously he had that card because it was funny and ridiculous, kind of mocking, you know, these like curious people. If you meet a poet now, it'll have a, a business card and you won't read it because it'll be full of all the credentials that will just, you know, take over his name. And that's what we had. So it's just, Credential seekers and strivers who could be anything, they all come from the same spaces, now are in this land. And that's what this is. If you want to get there, you have to, if you have any kind of savage quality and you want to get there, the first thing that has to be done is to excise all of it and just keep a little bit so you're allowed in. And that's that's what's happened. Like I literally had to like create like a writing sample, even back then, 10 years ago, that I knew was going to show enough multicultural spice, but it couldn't show that I was. You know, came from a background that's a little, you know, too problematic because that would have been a problem. So you get really adept at navigating that. So you read these stories, The New Yorker, Harper's, that it's a really well-manicured piece of work. That's what you get. No vitality, no savagery, nothing of that nature.
0: Yeah, and you also just have to be somebody who, you know, you have to essentially be able to do well in school, right? (laughs) And and so that just selects for a certain personality type.
1: Back then, it was actually crazy, deranged, talented people. And now you have Twitter crazy. So you have a person who's like social media crazy who are all the writers, but I didn't, I came from a non-writing background. I just grew up, I played baseball, but I was really heavy to literature. So when baseball finished, I wanted to be a writer because I wanted to maintain that kind of deranged jock life that I had. I'm like, okay, playing sports is insane. I want to stay with the insane people. So these are, I think the writers and the artists. So I read everybody who I like, Roth, Mailer, Barry Hannah. Bolano, Flannery O'Connor. These are people who I thought were crazy and brilliant, and I wanted to hang out with these people and be part of that world. And then I, and I got into these spaces, and really quickly you find out these are the most well-mannered people you will ever meet. And I'm not saying to be a writer you got to be some crazy drunk, but there has to be something there that you like to muck around with life. Which is Bolano is so great because there's just there's a pleasure in the muck of life that I don't see now in writers because. How can they be? They all went to the same boarding schools. They all go to the same schools. Like I went to Iowa. It was all kids from Harvard. It's like, I mean, that's great, fine people, wonderful, but come on. And now we see what gets published. Like Even when I was there, the books that were going to be big, you knew they were going to be big. these, these These are really adept people at creating a literary product. And the writers were really talented, but kind of off kilter in a way. They're unknown or they're chefs now. I don't know. And that's where you really see the way it's made. That all that we talked about, all that savage energy, it can't exist in academia. It just can't. So it's probably- yeah. I
0: mean, yeah. O'Connor is another one. It's like impossible to imagine uh, functioning in the current yeah, sort of yeah. literary environment. Um, yeah. Right. So it's. I mean. So the the professionalization is tied to both this. Um, you know, the, this kind of finishing school quality where you're you're being. You're being selected on your base on the basis of being able to kind of live up to the the mores of these, you know, what are ultimately very elitist institutions that still maintain this kind of wasp
1: yeah,
0: yeah. Um, sense of politesse. That for me that was the hardest you know, thing,
1: because I because I come from working class background, so I had to really like understand and like put on the costume of the norms. But then when you get there, you realize no, these people have been inculcated in. This is their life. So it me like creating some kind of autodidactic way to become like a you know passing elite was not gonna work because I'm from you know I'm from where I'm from. So that's when you really realize that yeah that's just it's just the same culture that you get in the elite schools is now in these MFA programs. And it's they're really expensive for the most part. And who really who really wants to be a writer or a poet? I mean a certain kind of person who probably like I meet some great writers in Miami but they've never written in their lives, they're just incredible people who can tell stories. And I think it's really sad that now that I write a thing, not I'm a critic, that I have to write about these people who are fascinating. Like, why can't they write the piece, sloppy and all, that would be a better piece than my edited and polished little piece? And that's what's happening. Like, why can't they write it? Because they haven't done the embarrassing thing that I've done. You had to just like you know cut out all the all the hard edges. Had to be you know, and it's weird because when I was in graduate school, like I was like. I don't want to say a bad boy, but almost like somebody who is like some kind of like, whoa, he comes from a non-writing background. He's kind of dark. And in Miami, I'm like the most like, you know, milk toast little person. Because if you're from Miami and you write fiction and you're a cultural critic, come on. You know, so you kind of have to like, you know, toggle back and forth. Like in one space you're this like dangerous thing, and in the other space, you're just like this like boring thing. And that's what happens. You kind of have to, I mean, so there will never be anybody who's an actual like savage writer, they can't get that They're by their very nature, they won't know what an MFA program is. Like, I didn't know what it was until somebody told me. As soon as I learned what that was, that was probably the beginning of the end for me as a writer. Once they told me this is an MFA, that was probably where I ended as a writer. Yeah, after that, I became more successful. But that was when I stopped being like a real writer. When I learned, oh, shit, there's institutions that I, I must be a part of. And they want a writing sample. They want, they want a sob story. They want a framing.
0: Right. You, yeah, you learn to play by the rules. and. I think, you know, that's surely something that also just, um, you know, in terms of the ways that these institutions are, are exclusionary, right. As people often point out, you know, they, they all, they, one of the things they exclude is a certain kind of personality type, yes. which may be, you know, extremely brilliant, but, um, you know, and often historically the, the most interesting and creative personalities are the ones who, who didn't want to play by the rules. Right. So, and I think, um, you know, it's just an interesting point about, so, you know, we're, we're thinking about, like, these different economies of, of prestige, and, um, you know, the, on one hand, there's kind of the traditional literary economy of prestige, which is formed by publishing houses, magazines, things like that, and then that overlaps to a huge extent with the university economy of prestige. And, you know, it's it's kind of hilarious that these are full of people who consider themselves left-wing because they're, in many ways, the most staged sort of hierarchical elitist and snooty kind of worlds you can imagine right and they are worlds that tend to favor people who have backgrounds where they you know they know how to talk the talk and they also have a certain comfortable um you know trust fund or whatever to fall back on if (laughs) you know if they need to struggle for a while and and still be in new york and showing up at the right parties and like you know i i sort of interpret the leftism in part that like you know because they're on the parallel track with all these people who are doctors and lawyers and so on they're like you know it's it's the bitterness it's sort of the like sense that you're downtrodden in relation to these other people who have the same degree who have the same degrees as you and went to the same schools as you but you're you know uh you have you have cultural capital or literary capital but you don't have you know you can't afford to uh Buy a nice apartment in Manhattan or whatever.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, there's there won't be a real like Miami novel per se because that person will not be able to penetrate the institution. That's what it is now. it's just there isn't any way to do it. And if you let's say that you've written that novel, you will have to then cut it up to be acceptable for the readers. That's I mean, like I've I taught writing for a long time. At a certain point, I stopped doing it because I was every time I encounter like a really talented writer. It's rare, but it happens. I'd be I would have that question, like they want to go to an MFA program. Well, I can't tell them don't do it because it's obviously I want them to, you know, start life. But then I had like, what do I say about their work? Do, do I kind of help them mold it into this polished, somber little piece that I know I know will get them in? Or do I do I try to have them maintain some kind of artistic integrity? And that was what I think eventually forced me to kind of leave the writing world, or create a writing world where you kind of just, after so long, for only so long, can you feel kind of like you're just playing this farcical game? And I don't have a big platform, but I'm one of the few people who talk about this. So I get, whenever I tweet about this little scene, lit scene, I get massive amounts of tweets from people who are like in the writing world or outside of it who want to like, who want something else. But it's just, most of them are still in the institutions so they can't do anything about it. And it's, because there isn't like, outside of the job prospects and there are probably not very many, there really isn't, there isn't that much of even like, great spoils there. So it's just people are still just so just afraid of just like making that leap. And it's because if you get, if you get to these schools, these spaces, you, you've you been doing that game for so long, for so many years that like how do you do it? Like, it's hard. Like I was only able to do it because I probably was never really part of it completely. And then I came back to Miami and here you can do whatever you want. So, but if you're really of that world, you really can't do it. It's, your entire life is caught up with people you date, your family, everybody is of that world so you really there wasn't any escape i mean so i've thought about like what happened like can there be a new lip scene i mean can there be something i don't know but i I know there's plenty of talent and energy i see it online all the time like sometimes there's people on twitter who are half crazy but they're brilliant brilliant. who is this person like i I even don't want to know because they're kind of scary but there's like great talent there and great energy and they are savage and they're producing great content and i was never on twitter got on last year and that's what I realized there is great talent, great energy. There is, it's out there. It's just, it's totally fringe. And even some of the people, you can tell that they're well-read, they're very smart. So they dropped out and now they become fringe, and they can't go back in. So if you want to read a great American novel, you have to, it's just a patchwork of crazy freaks on Twitter and social media. But I mean, if you want to create the institution, what, what do you do? Like, I, I don't know. Like I, i thought of maybe possibly doing something, but,
0: yeah, I mean this reminds me of uh, you know, going back to the whole Bolaño theme, you know, his representation of these extremely fringy figures in Mexico City and the savage detectives, right? Who are just these, you know, totally like, you know, it's the the um visceral realists. The, the visceral realists, you know, that they, they it's not clear whether like anybody knows or cares who they are, right? They produced this one magazine, this one edition of this magazine called Lee Harvey Oswald. It was funded by
1: some crazy arch. Yeah, it's true. It's funded by some <laughs>
0: architects.
1: Like it's crazy shit, but it's so fun. I'm like, that's what I'm looking for. I mean-
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and it's it really is. Um, I think part of what people uh, found so compelling about that was just it. W- it was these people who were utterly passionate about poetry, basically. But you know, we outside of any kind of prestige game, right? Who are just Um, producing this totally obscure work, but we're absolutely consumed by it, you know, or, you know, just kind of living this, um, this sort of picaresque bohemian life. And I mean, that is, you know, incredibly compelling, but it sounds like what you're saying is that the only equivalent to that we seem to be able to find today are, you know, these, I mean, in a way equally, or, or maybe slightly less obscure sort of internet, realms yeah, and um, is, which are full if, of equally
1: like, crazy people <laughs> like, and, and even if these people that are kind of crazy even if they're kind of wrangled into a system or into some kind of institution that might even you know stop it because so much of the internet why it works is because it's so even if it's now kind of being curtailed there's still a lot of there's still a lot of range to be kind of crazy and savage so maybe some of these people who are, create great content on twitter maybe if you kind of constrain them in book form something is lost so i don't know like maybe like I'm convinced now Twitter is the great like literary form of our time. Like that's where it's happening. Like I think novels, short stories, if they come from the publishing world, that has been cut up by editors, agents, these readers. So I think some of the greats, I think probably all the great stuff is happening on Twitter. I mean, and I never thought two years ago, I would have said that, but it's been on for a year. I'm like, yeah, I don't love that. I wake up now. The first thing I do is go to Twitter, but I do like having access to people who are producing, you know, they're talented hence people out there that I like to have access to. It gives me some kind of good feeling that they are out there. Might not want to meet them because who knows who they are. But but they're producing great work.
0: Yeah, and again, I think you know there there are probably some signs of this, but because this, you know, I think I think there are sort of um, you know the the whole cultural apparatus is sort of at odds with itself because of the the point we've discussed that it kind of needs to absorb these savage energies yeah. in, in, in order to perpetuate and revitalize itself i think there are various reasons why it it can do that right now and that's that's part of why the situation with is so um is is so bleak but um you know you you do wonder whether that that that's sort of um something that's going to be ultimately um, taken note of and, and whether that process will occur. But, you know, something that I find interesting about Bolaño in terms of his own, you know, again, he wasn't really somebody who, you know, he was part of these weird, very fringy scenes like the one he describes in Savage Detectives. Um, He wasn't really ever somebody who like tried really hard to kind of get in with the it crowd of literature at the time. He kind of lived in, you know, this remote town in Spain for much of his later career but he did um and this comes up in that Casanova um um world republic of letters book you know he did take advantage of this i think unique feature of spain of spain and maybe the spanish speaking world in general which is pr- the prize economy that like right. you know every like minor city has a literary prize so basically like he you know and he was trying to make money from his writing and so one thing he did was just like submit work to all of these different literary prizes and that's kind of part of how he you know, developed a, a career. So it was, it was quite a different approach from, I don't know, going to... One of the stories you know, from one
1: of the collections is basically him talking to some older writer, just saying, where do I submit all these stories? And they go back and forth. about know oh, he's got that story. That town has this like regional uh, story and that town's got that regional little award. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, and you could like, you the same story to two different places that nobody would know. So there was that. Now it's so just centralized here that you have to go through this funnel that you're basically going through Brooklyn. If you're going through Orberlin, and you're going through Brooklyn, that's where you're going through. And maybe if there was some kind of outpost in another city, maybe Miami or I don't know in the Midwest somewhere, there'd be some yeah. kind of creative outpost. That would be something.
0: Yeah. Cause I think, you know, another feature of the Spanish speaking world that makes it a little bit different is that, you know, I feel like there is this slightly more old fashioned sense where um, like literature is kind of valued just by middle-class people in a different way and also that like you know particularly like these smaller places sort of like to attach a certain amount of like cultural prestige to themselves so they'll fund these prizes they'll fund these um you know these events and things like that and um you know Bolaño like there's like a, a really wonderful story of his called Gomez Palacio which is like you know have you re- have you read that one it's like where it's about this writer who just goes and um he's like giving a reading in some really godforsaken yeah. like sad provincial mexican city called gomez palacio yeah. and it's like you know again a lot of it, it kind of has to do with that economy that he was part of where yeah. he was really just taking advantage of the the fact that these like small places would serve as kind of patrons right yeah. that that he would get a certain amount of patronage from these these kind of minor cities that yeah. had placed some kind of value on the arts and that's you know that's a very different um, you know that that economy that sort of prestige economy that he came up through is very different than ours where again as you say it passes through brooklyn publishing essentially and it passes through the universities and mfa programs um, which which are all You know, in the MFA, most MFA programs are cash cows right there.
1: Yeah. I mean, people ask me, like, should I go? And I go, if it's fully funded, you go. If they give you money, you go. If not, you don't go. But there's so many. And thankfully, I went for free. I got a stipend. I mean, Iowa will fund you. That's great. Like, if you can do that, just go and take the money and write and meet a mentor if you can. Meet some peers who like your work and do that. I mean, take the money and just have time to write. But if you're going to, like, one of these schools, like, I mean, which is a private, it's like 80 grand a year to get an MFA. I mean, that's crazy. So, if somebody does that, who's the person doing that? We already know who can pick 80 grand to get an MFA. I mean, so somebody who comes from money, probably a trust funder, who then will can be an internet, Vogue, or whatever, and not get paid for that either. And just that's what happens. But even for me, like, I didn't know what an MFA was until I was writing for a couple of years. So, that just tells you, like, if you're outside of the institution, you didn't even know, like, I didn't know what that was until somebody told me, oh, if you can apply to these schools. I teach how to be a writer. I was like, okay, that's pretty cool. I was like 24. I mean, I was not, I was playing baseball till 22. So I, I wasn't in that world. And so if you know what MFA is when you're 12 years old, that's probably really telling about your upbringing and your status and where you're from.
0: Do you, um, you know, in, in terms of that and this, uh, this whole question of the literary economy um, maybe just to finish off, you know, you, you brought up these different questions about, you know, both the present and the future, the present being, you know, there is this kind of strange vitality in Twitter and other realms that, you know, on one hand is, you know, kind of displays some of this like savagery and, and wildness that's kind of been lost to the mainstream literary world. But that, you know, you wonder if, if it was sort of captured by that, if, if it would just necessarily lose that. And then, I mean, I was curious your thoughts just on, and I think I've seen you post about this, um, like this kind of minor trend of these, these people have just essentially often anonymous, like essentially built platforms online. Many of whom are writing sort of problematic fiction, you know, maybe somewhat in the kind of Welbeck inspired mode, um, you know, delicious tacos, maybe the most prominent, you know, I'm just thinking of the, the economics of that specifically and how it, it bypasses any kind of prestige, right, where there's no there's no concern with the, having the imprimatur of publishers and of having that kind of literary capital. And instead, the entire approach is really just building up uh, a readership that is based on, you know, finding a readership that essentially isn't served by the current literary market and then, you know, making these, these cheap self-published eBooks, right. That can essentially be distributed, you know, made and distributed at almost zero cost. And um, I'm just curious what you, whether you think that portends a kind of larger trend or whether it's ultimately just always going to be a niche phenomenon or um, just how you see that as, as part of the, you know, maybe a kind of disaggregation that, that um, is, is challenging to the, the current literary monoculture in some form. Yeah.
1: I think mostly it'll be niche because say what you want about tacos is content or not, if it's problematic or not, it takes a lot of effort to produce constantly over like 10 years. So I think it takes a special, crazy kind of person to do that. So I think you have to have the talent one, and then you have to be able to produce to get an audience. I'm sure he's a pretty good audience. He sells books. You got to produce content for a very, very long time. So I think it's only, it'll maintain its niche quality because who, who can do that? There isn't very many that, will just produce work for five, six, seven years before there's anything to show for it. You have to be a, probably a real writer. But I will say there is, I'm not sure the size of the audience or the market, but there is there is a lot of young males online on Twitter who are reading that kind of work. It's more, I'm sure he sells more books than whatever award-winning uh, like young male writer who's published by, there was a writer last year, uh, Callan Wink, and his first novel come out last year in April. And he had... a. Uh, he had a book of stories came out two years before and he had eight or nine stories from the New Yorker. So you would have thought when his first novel came out, it would have been this, and I like his work. So you would have thought that I would have known somebody who follows this that so he had a novel coming out. I didn't know. He had one or two reviews, and I'm like, he has an agent, he has a publicist. What are they doing? So I think Taco's sells more than he sells more books than Callan Wink, I'm sure. Yeah, Wink might get a prize or two, and that'll keep him going. But I think there is there is a market for it. It'll mean It'll stay niche because who can do that? I think Bronze Age Pervert, fine example. Say what you want about his content, but I think he's a literary provocateur above everything else. Yeah, I like, I don't care about the politics to say that he's a fascist to say he's this. Like I don't care about that. Like I see as a literary product, and as a literary product, he's finding a readership. So there is there is a readership there. It's just I think it takes a special kind of person, and obviously Bronze Age Pervert whoever he is, I think people know what he, he he's always, he's somebody who's an, he's an intellectually minded person with a literary, like he knows what he's doing. Everything there is finally crafted with intent. There isn't anything, like everything he's putting out, even the stuff that's crazy is with literary. that is intended. So it takes a special kind of person to do that, but there's a massive, I don't know, massive, but there's a big audience. And and the fact that he gets a lot of hate, I think is proof that, that there is an understanding that there is a cultural vacuum there to be filled of, for like, uh, for like, uh, for the young males that they want to read a certain kind of writing that might be labeled reactionary, whatever you want to call it, but there is an audience there. And will it become bigger? Probably not, because who can do that? But it's there. It's like, I worked in publishing, I will look at a Bronze Age pervert or this is talking and be like, okay, I'm not maybe not going to publish books, this extreme, but there is an audience for this, that I can find a masculine writer, a Philip Roth type, that is not going to offend everybody that that will find an audience that that could definitely happen but the fact that it's not it's because anything that's kind of masculine is conflated i mean because even tacos like you read some of his stuff sure it's problematic or whatever but you read like old philip roth or barry hannah raymond carver it's 20 times worse for the most part so like tacos would have been like mainstream fodder 10 years ago i mean and so he could i mean i know he's tried to find an agent in the past but there isn't i mean for him he was able to cut the middleman out and reach his audience and that works.
0: Yeah, and uh, you know, it's just interesting to me as something that completely bypasses that economy yeah. of prestige. There isn't any, um, where it's literature that's really outside of that entire- I mean, he's also, um, also
1: very smart because, because he realized I can get the prestige that way, but if I frame myself as like an iconic classic outsider, you know, Age Pervert, Tacos, then you get that kind of like underground prestige that way. So if you're not like getting a little, all these little, you know, MFAs, all the fake little words you can kind of create this kind of outsider status which probably is cooler than i mean in the little mfa role. so there is that so there is but i think both of these guys are both very smart come from a literary background and so i think yeah there won't be many more of them because there probably isn't many people who, who come from that background who who will write and produce just say what you want these guys produce content constantly like i would like to maybe go anonymous and write and put out my fiction but i just don't write that much so I tip my hat. Like I have a piece coming out soon about that kind of scene, like, the kind of death of the kind of, I guess the, you know, it's the death of the bad boy. And the bad boy has kind of gone like online. Like now, there's a lot of female literary bad boys: Roxane Gay, another uh, uh, girl's name, a uh, Mossberg uh, cat person. Like these are all like the so now you have like all these like all these like sexualized stories now are being written by these like, female writers, and some of them are very good, and that's great. But they've kind of subsumed the bad boy. So now they've kind of taken that space. I found it really interesting, that like I mean, Roxane Gay is very, very popular. So I mean, even like Lauren Euler, like I will put in that space. Like she's become like almost like the enfant, enfant terrible now somehow.
0: And you were writing something about fake accounts, am I right? I kind of, yeah, I'm kind of working on that
1: not framing it like she kind of is like like she's like the new like enfant terrible. But it's like in a way that it's very like if your book is so successful and it's supposed to be. Bashing this system that is propping you up, how like satirical can it be? Like it was kind of framed as like, oh, she's like, you know, bashing like the New York publishing scene, like the media scene. But like, how can you be bashing a scene that is like, propping you up and like, you know, writing you, and making you its queen? Like, how's that possible? So she's a very calculated, very smart writer. I tip my hat because she really knows how to just walk that thread to like be just as, you know, kind of just as incisive as you can be, but like backtrack. She knows exactly what you can say, say but never cross the line that would piss off that will piss off her readers. So that's a very, very, I mean, she's very really good at what she does. She's a very, very shrewd writer. That's like, I think, the most somebody can do now if they are going to be framed by the mainstream process like a literary bad boy. You have to just know what you can say, say it, get really close to the edge, not even that close, but never risk topping over the edge. And that's, I mean, that is a very, very skilled person who understands first and foremost the inner workings of that world. It's the only way you can do that because she is from that world.
0: Well, cool. well, I look forward to reading, um, those upcoming pieces and, uh, it's probably a good moment to wrap it up. So thanks so much for the conversation. It's been, yeah, uh, fun and wide ranging.
1: really appreciate it.
0: Jeff. Thank you very much. Yeah. And, uh, just, you know, everybody look out for Alex's work, uh, his Twitter is Perez writes and, um, I'll give the links to sub stack and some of his recent pieces in the show notes. So, uh, Yeah, just uh, he's I found a a really great and unique person to follow for perspectives on the the literary scene and economy. So, um, yeah, thanks again.
1: Thanks.